passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. As I mentioned uh, earlier, this morning is the first uh, week in a new sermon series focusing on the Ten Commandments. We're going to be looking at the Ten Commandments uh, during the summer months uh, here at Crosswinds. And, and as we begin, I want to begin by just asking a question that I want you to wrestle with, and that is, what comes to mind when you think of freedom? What comes to mind when you think of freedom? Now, perhaps for many of us here uh, today, being in the United States, we think of the many freedoms that are afforded to us living in this country, living in this nation, or for others of us, uh, as we uh, approach the summer, especially our students and our teachers, they're thinking of just a few short weeks that separate them from the freedom of of summer. Others may be thinking of the freedom that comes with a day off or a vacation or the freedom that comes when retirement is finally here. Others may think about people actually breaking free from slavery, the the freedom that comes from breaking free from slavery, from chains, whether that's an actual slavery from human trafficking today, or whether that's just uh, freedom from the slavery of a nasty habit or a, a troubled past. And still others here, specifically maybe some of our graduating high school students, when you think of freedom, you think of the freedom that comes when you're finally on your own. And yet, whatever comes to mind when you think of freedom, I would guess that the one thing that doesn't come to mind that no one here thinks of is the word law. When we think of freedom, we don't think of law. Our, our culture tells us and views, really, that law and freedom are polar opposites. After all, law is getting told what to do, whereas freedom is getting to decide what to do. And in our understandable affection as a people for the freedoms that we have in this country, we can have a tendency to turn up our noses at law. At best, thinking of law as something that is a necessary evil, or at worst, thinking of law as simply an evil, period, no buts about it. Now, surprisingly, perhaps, this is no more, nowhere more apparent than in the church today. I think that the church, in an attempt to emphasize the freedom of the gospel, to emphasize the freedom of grace that we have in Christ Jesus, churches can often have the tendency to turn the word law into a dirty word. Law can have a tendency to be something that is synonymous with legalism, and as such is therefore something to be avoided at all costs. And yet, is that what God intends for us when it comes to the law? Is that what God intends for us as people when it comes to the law, to see it as nothing more than a dirty word? Was the law merely God's just first plan, his plan A, which didn't work out so well in the Old Testament, and so then he sent Jesus, and that worked out a whole lot better in the New Testament? What place for Christians does the law have in our lives? And as we begin this sermon series over the next few months, we want to start by asking this question, what place does the law have in our lives? Are we going to spend some time looking at this uh, at, at these commands for us, but are they relevant for us? Are they rele- relevant for us as Christians? 
And this morning, we're going to see that the Ten Commandments were not given to us in a vacuum. The Ten Commandments are a part of a story. They're a part of a narrative of God at work in human history and specifically in Israel's history as we look at it this morning. And that's what the prologue of the Ten Commandments is all about. The prologue is the first two verses of Exodus 20, the the chapter where we get the Ten Commandments. And as we look at the prologue, we are reminded that if we read the Ten Commandments, removed from what God has been doing in Israel up to this point, then we will see them as legalistic, that we will see them as a form of works righteousness. But if we read the Ten Commandments in the context of God's mission, God's incredible mission to save Israel and then to save all of humanity, that these are not just the law of perfect freedom, but they are the only place where true freedom can be found. Indeed, as we study the law, we will see that the law is a place where true freedom is found. The boundaries that allow us to live the life that God has given or has planned for each and every one of us. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Exodus chapter 20. Uh, this is the giving of the Ten Commandments. Uh, it's a, we're, we're just going to be looking at the first two verses of this chapter this morning, what is called the prologue uh, to the Ten Commandments. And as we study these two verses, I hope there's just one truth that is abundantly clear for us this morning. It is this, God's demands on your life. Let me say that again. God's demands on your life cannot be separated from his redemption of your life. God's demands on your life cannot be separated from his redemption of your life. And that's a loaded statement. So let's take a a few moments to unpack it and see what we mean. When we say that God's demands on your life cannot be separated from God's redemption of your life, first, this statement tells us that God demands something of your life. God places demands on your life. It is not legalistic. It is not sub-Christian. It is not denying the gospel that God places demands on your life. God commands you to do things as a Christian. The New Testament is filled with commands that are given to those who believe the gospel. Now, we don't want to just soften God's commands for his children. God doesn't just want you to live a certain way. God doesn't just want you to live in a way that honors him. God commands you to live in a certain way. He commands you to live in a way that honors him. God has placed demands on the lives of his children. And yet, at the same time, this statement that God's demands on your life cannot be separated from God's redemption of your life, this statement declares that the commands that God has placed on you are never to be divorced from the work that he has already done for you. Probably the the most powerful picture of this for me is in the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians is six chapters long. In the six chapters of Ephesians, there are 41 commands Of those 41 commands, only one is found in the first three chapters of the book, and that is a command to remember. The first three chapters of Ephesians are all about the gospel. They're all about telling us what Christ has done for us, what God the Father has done for us, what the Holy Spirit now does for us by living within us. It's all about God's incredible work for his people. But then you get to chapters four, five, and six. And chapters four, five, and six hinge on this vitally important word, the word 
therefore. It's saying, because of what Christ has done for you, therefore this is how you are to live. And there is basically command after command after command. The 40, uh, 40 of the 41 commands that are found in Ephesians are found in the last half of the book telling us how we are to live in light of the gospel. We must never think that the commands Christ has for us as his people are to earn our salvation or to even prove our salvation. They are a response to the salvation that God has already given us, and that's true here in the Exodus as well. The book of Exodus starts by telling us about God's work, incredible salvation for the people of Israel, that God has given the people freely through his grace salvation, just as he does in the New Testament. These two verses, the introduction to the Ten Commandments, remind us that God's demands on our life cannot be separated from God's redemption of our lives. So let's take a look at these two verses and see God's incredible, glorious truth for us found in these two verses. Sets the foundation, lays the foundation for us as we study these commands. And what we're going to see is that really these, these two verses give us four statements that crystallize the purpose of God's law for us as his people. If you have a Bible, I invite you to follow along starting in verse 1 of Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, this, uh, this section, these two verses, they contain four different phrases, and I think these four phrases, when taken separately, provide us with the proper context to understand the Ten Commandments. So first, let's look at the phrase in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying... It's clear from this passage, from this phrase, that this key piece of the Old Testament is found in the middle of a narrative. Something has been happening before this, and something's going to continue happening after this. So what takes place before Exodus 20? Well, the easy answer is Exodus 1 through 19. Exodus 1 through 19 tell us all about God's redemption of the people of Israel. Israel is enslaved to the Egyptians for 400 years. They're living in terrible conditions when they find themselves at a place where even their children are being slaughtered by the Egyptians. But as the people of Israel languish, God has not forgotten them. God is at work, And God takes an Israelite who was raised in the Egyptian high court, but who exiled himself to the desert. God takes this man named Moses, and he calls him to lead the people of Israel out of bondage to the Egyptians. And so Moses returns from his self-imposed exile in the desert. He returns to Egypt. You're likely familiar with the story. Moses goes to Pharaoh after God has told him that he is going to use him to release his people, to free his people. And he goes before Pharaoh and says, God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh laughs at him. He refuses in fact, things even get worse for the Israelites after this request from Moses. He increases the burden on the Israelites. And so God sends plagues on the people of Egypt. And after each of these plagues, Pharaoh promises to release the Israelites if God is going to relent 
and God relents. And then Pharaoh changes his mind and says, never mind. I, will, I like having uh, uh, an entire nation enslaved, and so I'm going to keep them here. And this happens plague after plague. It's a cycle through the book of Exodus. And then we get to Exodus 12. Exodus 12 tells us of the final plague and the redemption of Israel. Every household in Israel is to slaughter a lamb and cover the doorposts of their house in the blood of the lamb. They are to take the shed blood, put it on their doorposts. And this act, this act of faith, by doing so, they will be spared from the judgment that will come upon Israel. Notice I call this an act of faith because it is in its very essence an act of faith. They are responding to the promise of God. God said, if you do this, I will spare you. And they're responding to that promise of God, this promise of deliverance with faith, with an act that shows their trust in God. And sure enough, God comes through. Pharaoh not only allows the people of Israel to go, but he's so distraught over this that he actually sends them out, not just a little bit far away to, to worship their God in the desert, but to leave, completely leave. He doesn't want anything to do with them. He doesn't want anything to do with their God, this God who brought judgment not just on Egypt, not just on Egypt's God, but for Pharaoh, specifically on Pharaoh's family. And so the Israelites leave. They head to the promised land, but another crisis uh, arises when Pharaoh changes his mind again, pursues the Israelites. He has them trapped up against the Red Sea, ready to slaughter them and to enslave them once more. But again, God delivers the people of Israel from the hand of the Egyptians by letting them cross through the, the Red Sea on dry la land and destroys Egypt, the greatest world power of the day. And just think about being an, uh, being an Israelite in that moment and that great test of your faith it would take to see where there once was a large body of water, now there's a path right down the middle. You see water on this side, water on this side, and you have to trust God that he is going to keep that water at bay while you and your family and your friends and your nation all pass through before the water goes crashing back down. It's another act of faith. God delivers them from the hand of Egyptians in the subsequent chapters, Exodus 15, 16, 17, and 18. They tell of Israel in the wilderness as they're journeying to Mount Sinai. They tell of God's continued provision for the people of Israel, their continued necessity to walk by faith in this newfound freedom from slavery they're in the desert after all, and it is quite impossible for them to provide for themselves, to provide for their own needs, and so they are dependent upon God to sustain them in the midst of their time in the desert. And then we get to Exodus chapter 19. The people of Israel, they arrive at the foot of Mount Sinai, and it's here that God makes a covenant which is a fancy word for saying an agreement, a compact with the Israelites that contains provisions on how they are to live, promises of blessing if they are to live in a certain way. Now, it would be inaccurate for us to say that salvation was by works in the Old Testament. That's not at all what we just read, what we just saw in the book of Exodus. After all, God didn't give Israel a list of commands while they were still in Egypt and saying, if you want to be free from slavery, 
If you want to get out of Egypt, here's a list of things I'm going to need you to do first before I come through for you. No, that's not what takes place. God delivers the people of Israel time and time and time again. God sustains them. God journeys with them. God walks with them. All of these things before the law. And that's our first statement this morning as we consider the Ten Commandments. God's demands have always been in response to his salvation. God's demands have always been in response to his salvation. When the people of Israel arrive at Sinai, they've already been saved. They've already been saved, but because they have been saved, there are obligations. There are obligations of this covenant, of this agreement, of this compact with God that come with that salvation. And so we come to Exodus 20, and this chapter begins with these words, and God spoke. And God spoke. God is a speaking God. He's the one who spoke all of creation into existence in Genesis 1. Here, God is speaking again, and he's speaking a new people into existence, the people of Israel, the people that will be his. Because they are his, they are to live like he does. And I believe in, in this first verse, it's particularly important for us to understand what is being said here in our context today. We live in a context of increased skepticism. We live in a, a context where fake news abounds, and this text is explicit. It is not something that got confused along the way. God is the one who spoke. It is not Moses who spoke. It was not Aaron who spoke. It was not a group of elders who spoke and said, this is what we believe God has said. God was the one who spoke and he gives us clarity into what he expects of his people, what he demands of his people that he has just saved. Remember, this is not in order that they might be saved, but because he has saved them. And just like today, God's demands that he places on the people of Israel are a response to his salvation here for the people of Israel. Let's continue into, the, uh, into verse two. The first phrase of, of verse two says, I am the Lord your God. The first thing God says as he is giving the people of Israel the law is I am the Lord your God. The first thing he does as he's commanding people on how they are to live is to declare who he is. And that's our second statement this morning. It's simply this. God's demands on your life reveal what kind of God he is. God's demands on your life reveal what kind of God he is. This God who has saved them is the Lord. He is the sovereign king of all creation. He is the ruler of all. The previous chapter, Exodus 19, tells us what it was like, how awesome and terrible it was to be in God's presence that day at Sinai. Consider these words from Exodus 19. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. 
The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Now pause and use your imagination. Let your imagination just mull these words over, recreate the scene. It's a calm, peaceful day. You're camping next to the majestic, beautiful mountains in the Arabian Peninsula. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, a massive thunderstorm begins on the mountain as it is veiled in this thick cloud. Now, at first you may think, well, that, that's odd, but it is very hot here after all, and this could just be caused by this oppressive heat. But then a, a loud trumpet blasts, and that sends a shiver down your spine and the spine of everyone else. And everyone hides in terror at the arrival of this mysterious God. But then Moses, he forces everyone out of their hiding places to go stand before this awesome, before this terrible descending God, and the lightning and thunder continue, but now it's not just covered, the mountain's not just covered in a cloud, it's also covered in smoke, and the mountain begins to tremble. And, and lest we think that this is just some sort of dormant volcano that's sprung back to life, that's spewing fire and it's starting to, to shake the earth, the trumpets continue to get louder and louder and louder, signaling the arrival of the king. How great and terrible must have been that day. This past winter, which seemed to last for eternity, uh, this past winter, I, I took some time to reread the books uh, by C.S. Lewis, the, the children's novels, The Chronicles of Narnia. And as I was reading through those books, I was reminded, uh, uh, just struck by how wonderful a picture uh, C.S. Lewis paints of this incredible juxtaposition that is found in the character of God between the, the terrible might and the unconquerable love that we find in God. When he's describing Aslan, the lion, who is, is he's based off of Jesus in these novels. And you're, you're probably familiar with one of the conversations that takes place between some of the characters in this book when he says this. Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course Aslan isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And I think of that phrase when I read Exodus 19. That day, safety was the furthest thing from everyone's mind. But the king was good. And that was good enough. This mighty king, this awesome, terrible, mighty king is not just a distant king. The text tells us, or calls him, he declares that he is the Lord, but not just the Lord. He also calls himself your God. Now, significantly, God is speaking to all the people of Israel at this point. All of them, at the end of Exodus uh, chapter 19, all of them are brought before the mountain again. Moses descends, and God begins to speak to each and every single person that is there. They're all standing before God, and God says, I am the Lord, your God. But the word your is not just your, plural, referring to everyone. He's saying, I am the Lord, your God. It's singular. God is referring to every single person that is standing there and saying, I am your God. 
He is not just a distant creator, not just the sovereign king of the universe. He is also intimately concerned with every single facet of your life, every single detail in your life. There is no such thing as being found in a, or being lost in obscurity with God. There's no such thing as blending in when it comes to God. God is either your God personally. God is your God, and as such, God has demands on your life, has given the law for you to follow specifically. He is deeply and passionately concerned about your obedience, or if he is not your God, then you stand as an outsider, someone who, for the Israelites, had not been brought through the Passover, not been brought through the Red Sea, not found uh, faithful in the wilderness. You see, God is a sovereign king, but God is not just a sovereign king. He is also an intimate father. And if we don't get that, then the Ten Commandments begin to lose their meaning and certainly some of their power. The Ten Commandments are far more powerful when we read the Ten Commandments, not just as a general statement to everyone, but a statement specifically written to you. The Ten Commandments look at my life and they say, Jordan, I am the Lord your God who saved you. I am your, I am you, Jordan Randall Gowan, born in Clarinda, Iowa on May 26, 1988, the firstborn son of Kevin Franklin Gowan and Jolinda Lee Isaacson Gowan. I am your God. I saved you from enslavement to sin. I transferred you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of my beloved son. Therefore, you will have no other gods before me. I know the pantheon of gods that live in your life, that fights for the undivided affection of my life in your soul. I know about the idol of self. I know the idol of, of, American, of the American dream. I know the idol of comfort. I know the idol of family. I have saved you. I own your life. How will you respond? And commandment by commandment, this your excruciatingly dissects every single square inch of my life, and nothing is missed. That same your does the exact same heart probe to each and every person here who God says, I am your God does it to every single one of us that God has saved. He owns the rights to your life as, his, as a loving Savior. And each and every one of these commandments is written specifically to you. You see, God's demands on your life reveal what kind of God he is, but they reveal what kind of God he is in another way too. Now, it's commonly known that rules reflect the rule giver. The person who, who creates a rule, who, who creates a law, uh, it really just reveals some of his character, and that's on display here in the United States as well. As one pastor helpfully points out, that the unbelievable number of requirements that are placed on handicap accessibility in our public spaces here in the United States reveal something about us, reveal something about us as a nation and our uh, our hearts. We desire that no one be uh, disallowed access, restricted access to public gatherings to be a part of the community based off of physical limitations. The rules show the hearts of the rule givers. And the Ten Commandments do the exact same thing. 
The Ten Commandments reveal, us, reveal to us the character of God. They reveal to us that God is the only one worthy of worship and that we must, worthy, or we must worship God rightly. They reveal that God has an expectation that we honor him with our speech and that we rely on him for our provision. They reveal that we should love others, not just externally, but also internally as well. The laws, the Ten Commandments, reveal to us the character of the lawgiver or of God. So before we continue, pause and, and answer this question. One of the questions we asked this morning, does the law still apply for us as Christians? To answer that, we have to consider that there are three different types of law found in the Old Testament. There is civil law, ceremonial law, and moral law. First, civil laws. Civil laws were given by God to the nation of Israel that shaped how Israel would govern as a political nation. Israel existed in a unique status, one that was a political nation, and they were also God's people. And that meant that there were some laws given from God to the nation that were concerned with how to govern a nation, how to set up the nation's political life in a way that honored him. But today, the church is not a sovereign state. The church is instead found in every nation. The way that we understand God's people is fundamentally different in the New Testament than it is in the Old Testament. God's kingdom, according to Jesus, is no longer physical, but is instead something that, not, not to be pinpointed on a map, but is increasingly covering the face of the earth, all because of what Christ has done. And so when we are in the Old Testament, we read these civil laws in the Old Testament, they're no longer binding. They pointed us to Christ and have been fulfilled by Christ's coming. Now, there may be good principles for us in these civil laws on how govern, uh, governments here, uh, governments of the nation should rule, but they are no longer required for us as the church because the church is not a nation, and Christ has come. Second, ceremonial laws. The, there are a number of, of laws in the Old Testament that restrict access to God, in Israel, based off of certain actions that would make a person clean or unclean, ceremonial laws that required the keeping of certain festivals and feasts, more and more types of ceremonial laws found in the Old Testament. And every single one of those, every single regulation that is a ceremonial law in the Old Testament points us to Christ in one way or another. And Christ has come. That's what the author of Hebrews has in mind in Hebrews 10 when he says this, for the law is but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. Jesus has come. And as the one who has come, the one who is our high priest, the one who has overcome, the one that the whole Old Testament points to, because Jesus, the reality has come, there is no need for shadows anymore. Third, moral laws. Do moral laws that are found in the Old Testament, such as the Ten Commandments, do they still apply for Christians? Should Christians follow the Ten Commandments? Let's answer that question with another question. Has God's character changed? Has God's character changed? Of course not. 
God hasn't changed since the cross and the empty tomb. He's still the only one who is worthy of worship, and we still must worship him in the right way. He's still worthy of honor with our speech. He is still the one that we should rely solely on for provision. He still expects us to love others externally as well as internally. And because the lawgiver has not changed, then the law has not changed either for his saved and redeemed people. See, God's demands on your life reveal what kind of God he is. He is a sovereign king. He is an intimate father. He is the perfect rule giver who has authority as your redeemer to issue demands on your life. God is good. Now let's continue looking at the last two phrases here found in in verse two. We're gonna look at them together and then we're gonna look at them separately. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God reminds the people of two things that he has done for them, which is really just one thing. He uses two phrases to describe the salvation that he has given to Israel in, the, uh, in bringing them out of, of Egypt, in the Exodus. And in this passage, God tells us, Remember, this passage, God demands on your life cannot be separated from his redemption of your life. Here, he reminds them of two pieces of that salvation. Before we get to verse three, he reminds them of two pieces of their salvation. They're saying the same thing, but they focus on different nuances as they're said in parallel. So let's consider each one separately. First, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. This phrase declares to us that God's demands on your life are based on his faithfulness, based on his faithfulness. The focus of the book, uh, the focus on salvation from Egypt calls to mind God's promises in the book of Genesis. God made several promises to Israel's ancestors in the book of Genesis, focusing specifically on their freedom from Egypt. Genesis 15 is the first example of this. God tells Abraham, the ancestor of the people of, Egypt, uh, of Israel, that they will one day be enslaved in Egypt and then freed by God's hand. Genesis chapter 15. Then the Lord said to Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation and that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions." God gives the exact same promise to Abraham's grandson, Jacob, right before he goes down to Egypt in Genesis 46. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand will close your eyes. It's the same promise that sustains the people of Israel during their long sojourn in Egypt, beginning with Joseph. In the final few verses of Genesis, it says this, Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. This hope, this promise based in God's faithfulness is what sustains the people of Israel for 400 years of slavery and affliction. And by here, in in verse two of Exodus 20, with this phrase, who brought you out of Egypt, God is reminding the people of Israel that he has kept his promises to them from the very beginning. 
Hundreds of years before this moment, when God is speaking to the people on Sinai, God is remembering what he had said to Abraham like it was yesterday. What he had said to Jacob like it was yesterday. Why should we keep God's commands? It's because God is faithful. God is faithful. He knows best. And his demands on our lives are based in that faithfulness. Let's look at the final phrase. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of slavery. Out of the house of slavery. This makes clear to us that God's demands on your life are based on your redemption. Based on your redemption. The word redemption is not just a generic word that means salvation. It is an economic term. It originally was found more often in the marketplace than it was in religious circles. The word to redeem uh, something is really just to pay a price to, uh, to, for a good or property to be released into your care. So if you went through hard financial times and you had to sell your farm, your family member would have the opportunity to redeem it, to pay money to the purchase, person who purchased it, who now possessed it, in order for it to be returned into your care. That's what the book of Ruth is about in one sense. It's about this idea of redemption. Now, in the Exodus, we see the redemption of the people of Israel by God. They are redeemed from slavery through the blood of the Lamb at Passover, and God saves them time and time and time again from Egypt and Egypt's gods. But these Israelites are not just free to do whatever they want. They now belong, body and soul, to God. They have been freed, yes, but now they belong to God, the one who freed them. Paul picks up on this in Romans chapter 6. He says this, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. Paul is using the same imagery of the Exodus here when he's describing our salvation as Christians. He's using the language of the Exodus and of redemption from slavery. You see, like the Israelites, we also were enslaved, though, to a master that was far greater than the master of uh, the Israelites, the Egyptians. And like the Exodus, God has freed us, though, with a price that cost him far more than the Exodus did. And we have been freed. We are now God's people like the Israelites were, to live as God sees fit, just like at the Exodus, God's demands on your life are based on your redemption because you have been bought with a price. So as we study these powerful verses over the coming months, don't forget the context. Don't forget of what God has already done for you. God's demands on your life cannot be separated from God's redemption of your life. God has paid for your life. God has purchased you to make you a part of your family. And once you realize that, once you realize that God's commands are not burdensome, that is the place where we find perfect freedom. There's a conversation between Martin Luther. Uh, there's a, a story of a conversation between Martin Luther and, and one of his, his students. Martin Luther was explaining to this student uh, the significance of salvation by grace and that anything and everything that we do does not earn us salvation, but salvation is simply a free gift. And the things that we do are in response to that. 
Our obedience is not something that we do to earn God's favor, but it's simply just a response of gratitude. When the student hears this, he, he just can't believe it. And, and he responds by saying, but that means I can do whatever I want. And Martin Luther simply replied, yes. Now what do you want? What do you want? See, the Ten Commandments are far more than a call to external obedience. They are a call to examine your heart. They are a call to examine your heart you have been given salvation. You have been given freedom in Christ. Now, what will you do with that freedom? What is it that you want? Remember, God's salvation for you is the foundation of the demands he places on your life. You have been freed. You are now his child. What do you want? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths that are found in it. We thank you for the high, high calling that you give to us, your children. Even when it is difficult, even when it hurts, God, we are grateful for it. We ask now that your spirit would come, convict us, and more than convict us, empower us to leave, lead Christ-centered lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.